Welcome to this Federalist Society Faculty Book Podcast, discussing firearms law and the Second Amendment, regulation, rights, and policy, by authors Nicholas Johnson, David Kopel, George Moxery, and Michael O'Shea. Thank you for tuning in. Firearms law provides a comprehensive overview of the constitutional right to private firearms, the first traditional casebook on the subject, covering the history and development of the constitutional right to keep and bear arms, and all aspects of firearms law, policy, and regulations. The book serves as a starting point for discussion of contemporary gun law issues raised by the Supreme Court's 2008 ruling in District of Columbia v. Heller that invalidated a law banning handgun possession in Washington, D.C., and its 2010 ruling in McDonald v. Chicago, which extended that right to constrained state action. Authors Nicholas Johnson, a professor at Fordham University School of Law, and Michael O'Shea, a professor at Oklahoma City University School of Law, are joined by commenter Adam Winkler, a professor at UCLA School of Law, to discuss the book. As always, the Federalist Society takes no position on particular legal or public policy issues. All expressions of opinion are those of the speakers. And now, Professor Johnson. I discussed this project or project like this many years before we got started with Rick Mixter from Aspen. Dave Copel and I, a little bit after that, discussed doing an updated version of his very good NYU reader that had become sort of dated. And the project obviously became really compelling after the Supreme Court affirmed the individual right to arms in the Heller decision in 2008. So this is work in progress of about four years. It's the first traditional law school textbook on the subject, the first book really to attempt to entirely frame the canon. So I thought I would summarize what we've done here and also try and talk just very briefly about some of the innovations of the book. So there are four components to the project. First is the traditional print book. It runs 108 pages. We have another roughly 500 pages in four online chapters that are coming forward soon. We also have an innovative and exclusively electronic format teacher's manual that we have developed and is available for people today. And finally, we have a dedicated website, firearmsregulation.org, where we will continue to post new developments and things continue to be fast-moving. And we also will build a library of quality student research papers. So the print book proceeds chronologically. We go through basically the origins of the right to arms in part one, and then the right to arms in the modern era in part two. And those who are interested in seeing the full table of contents, those are available in detail online. The challenge to the book was deciding whether to go chronologically initially or not. And I think we made ultimately a good determination to proceed chronologically. Still, though, the chronological treatment imposes for us some challenges, and I'll talk about those in just a second. A couple of the innovations that I want to talk about, once we get to the end of the Heller era, we do two things that are unusual, I think, and important as different approaches in this sort of project. In Chapter 10, for example, we have a chapter that's made up substantially of amicus briefs from the Heller case, and the virtue of that approach is that it allows us to treat some contentious intersections in a way that is even-handed. So, for example, we have briefs from the Congress of Racial Equality and also from the NAACP. They take divergent views on the issues that we discuss in the book, 
And the amicus briefs seem to us to be a nice and fair way to present both sides of or both perspectives on the question. We do similar things for issues of gender and disability and sexual orientation. When we get to Chapter 11, this is another post-Heller, post-McDonald chapter, and Chapter 11 includes, again, some of the sort of burgeoning jurisprudence and some of the issues that we think are going to continue to be disputed now that the court has taken a view that the individual right to arms is guaranteed by the Constitution. The four online chapters are a bit out of sequence in terms of the chronological approach. So it's a place where we have moved away from the chronological approach, and we organize them in the following fashion. Chapter 12 is a treatment of the social science. It's currently about 200 pages and includes a variety of tables and other data that will influence the way that people think about and the intuitions that people have about sound firearms policy. Chapter 13 is a treatment of international law issues that affect the gun question, some of the traditional international law standards, some treatises, references, and some treaties and initiatives of the UN. Chapter 14 is a comparative law assessment that addresses some of the common currents across cultures and also some of the divergence across cultures. It looks at issues of uh, gun culture and different consequences in terms of gun use and gun crime across cultures. And there's a nice synergy between Chapter 14 and the material in Chapter 12. The online Chapter 15 was originally the first chapter in the book, and it is a very detailed assessment of firearms technology, and we thought that it had gotten very long at the outset, so Mike O'Shea rewrote it, and we now have an abbreviated version in the print book, but Chapter 15 is the full version that Mike originally prepared. The other substantial innovation of the book is the online teacher's manual, and it really is a substantive addition to the book. It includes things that did not make it into the book for space reasons, but it also includes a variety of issues that were undeveloped in the jurisprudence from the lower courts at the time. And that supplement, I think, will continue to enrich users. The other aspect of the online format is that it allows us to include sort of links to documents and videos in the teacher's manual, and that's an innovation that I think is quite new. The other part of the teacher's manual that people will notice when they move through and compare the teacher's manual to the book is that the teacher's manual is a place where our voice and our opinion comes through more clearly. So in the print book, we've got throughout the book, discussion questions that help us frame the issues that are set up by the cases and the various other materials. And we tried very hard to present materials, but also the discussion questions and the notes in a neutral and even-handed fashion. Now, that's a challenge because on many of these issues, we have all of us taken positions in print and in public. So the teacher's manual offers us a place where the answers that we think are right are presented in a good level of detail with citations and links. When you read those answers and when you read the tone of the teacher's manual, you will see that it's a quite different approach from the book, and I think the difference in tone between the teacher's manual and uh, the book is an indication that we've gotten fairly close to our goal of framing the canon in a basically neutral fashion. One other innovation that I wanted to mention with regard to the print book is something we call the connection question. 
This arose because as we were writing the book, we found that in a variety of places we were posing questions and talking about the answers and realizing that those questions were connected to material that would not appear for another three or four chapters or sometimes farther away than that. And our solution to the problem was to designate throughout the book these in bold print indicated by a bold CQ these connection questions that alert the reader to the fact that the issue or the question is also substantially related to something else that will appear later in the book. And in, in teaching the draft versions of the book over the last couple of years, I think we all have found that this tool has been a valuable thing for users and for teachers. The final innovation that I would mention is our effort to develop a library of research papers on our website, firearmsregulation.org. So what we anticipate is that teachers who use the book will probably include as a substantial part of the grading requirement of a student research paper. So we're inviting users to nominate and submit quality research papers from students in fashion that allows us to vet them, and then we will post those that we think are very good onto the website as a research source in the future. The thing I'm really most proud of in terms of the way the book came out is that our effort to frame the canon in really a neutral way on a contentious subject where we all have taken positions, I think has turned out fairly well. I think we've achieved that. And this issue occupied a great deal of our conversation. One manifestation of it was discussions that we had about whether to include a variety, so there's a law review article in, in Chapter 11 that people will see that I think is flawed, and one of my co-authors wrote a response to it that I think really dismantles it, but it's written by a federal court judge, and it's a widely cited article, and it presents an interesting point of view in a compelling way, so ultimately the decision to include it was easy even though we, I think, all of us had substantial disagreements with it substantively. So that's one example, and there were many, many others of scenarios where we had long conversations about uh, whether something was accurate or not or whether something was the right view, and we ended up, I think, getting uh, good calls on almost all of those. So this project was many years in the making. I could talk about it endlessly, but I think I'll turn it over to my co-author, Mike O'Shea. Well, thank you, Nick, and uh, my thanks to the Federalist Society for the opportunity to talk about our book and about the Second Amendment, neither of which are things I need much encouragement to do. I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the connections that I see between the structure of the textbook, as Nick described it, and where Second Amendment law is today. Since this is the first traditional law school text in its field, the book needs to serve a number of different audiences. And so there are professors who might want to teach a legal history seminar on the history of the right to arms. Some might want to teach the District of Columbia versus Heller and McDonald versus Chicago cases themselves as a case study in constitutional civil rights litigation. Some people might want to teach a class on federal firearms law where they really focus on the current gun control statutes and regulations and how they interact with the developing law of the Second Amendment. And for that matter, non-academics or non-lawyers may want to own the book as a resource on gun rights and gun policy. One of the joys of this research specialty I've found is that there is more lay interest in what you do than there is in some other fields of legal scholarship. 
I think we offer resources for all of these different audiences in the textbook. At the same time, even at 1,008 pages, there were some difficult choices about what to include. So while we go into a good deal of detail about the complex federal gun control statutes in Chapter 8, the National Firearms Act of 1934 and the Gun Control Act of 1968, our approach is what I'd call illustrative rather than comprehensive. So it's not a a CLE or a practitioner level of detail. For a technically comprehensive treatise about the federal gun control laws, we might recommend Stephen Hallbrook's two-volume firearms law desk book, which is regularly updated. But I wanted to say another thing about the reason for the chronological or historical structure of the book. I think part of that reflects the fact that Second Amendment law is an emergent subject today. It could be compared perhaps to teaching the First Amendment in the 1940s and 1950s when Supreme Court decisions were just beginning to suggest that free speech and religion rights would receive significant judicial protection. The lower courts are moving fast in some ways, but there is still not yet a lot of guidance on the individual right recognized in Heller and McDonald. So if you want to find examples of courts and commentators carefully interpreting the right to keep and bear arms, and particularly of courts and commentators that treat it as an important individual right that's on a par with other constitutional rights, then you should look at history, and including the American history of the late 18th and 19th centuries. Courts and scholars are beginning to do this, and I think they will find a lot of material in this textbook to help them. I will also just say, in my experience, this is very lively material to teach, including the historical material. Many students come to law school with a vague idea that the Second Amendment has always been viewed dismissively, which is the way that most elite legal sources seem to view it in the 1970s and 1980s as something that either gave no protection to individual rights or protected only a thin right of some kind to participate in a military organization. But in fact, there's a rich American history of treating the right differently, and in my experience, students are sometimes pretty surprised when they encounter that for the first time. Of course, one other reason for the historical structure of the textbook is that it follows the Heller and McDonald cases. As most people know by now, Heller very explicitly used originalism to interpret the meaning of the Second Amendment. The opinions of the Supreme Court in both Heller and McDonald, and for that matter, the concurrences and the dissents, were saturated with discussion of American history and tradition of the right to arms. Some of the lower courts have taken note of this. For example, last year in Ezell versus City of Chicago, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit struck down Chicago's post-McDonald ban on gun ranges as a violation of the Second Amendment. It relied heavily on historical analysis to conclude that the scope of the Second Amendment right includes not just possessing arms, but practicing with one's arms at a shooting range. So history is intertwined with current doctrine in this area of law today to a special degree. I might also follow up on a comment that Nick made about kind of our approach or our voice in this work. As he said, we've tried to present sources that reflect a range of important perspectives. I would say one place where we use a little bit different voice is in Chapter 8 on 20th Century Gun Laws. It includes a roughly 30-page social and political history of the right to arms between Miller and Heller, Miller was the 1939 Second Amendment decision of the Supreme Court. 
And while this account fits in the chronology of the book, it can also be read as a self-standing narrative essay. And there we try and tell a coherent political and cultural story about the gun control debate of the last four decades, weaving together the events in a way that we think is fair and is informed, but also reflects a more personal or opinionated perspective. And as Nick mentioned, the teacher's manual does some of this too. We present arguments in some detail about the many legal and policy questions in the text. And so we go into some of what we think are the right answers to these questions. This is Adam Winkler, and thank you for including me on this call and on this podcast. I will say it was a real treat to get a chance to look thoroughly through Firearms Law and the Second Amendment by Professor Johnson and Professor O'Shea and others. I should just start off by saying that I think this is a fantastic resource. It's a fantastic textbook. It's really a pleasure to look through. I found myself going through page after page saying, oh, yeah, that's great. I wouldn't have thought to include that, but what a great choice to do so. I like the strategic choices they made throughout the book. For instance, they begin the book with a brief little 10 or 15-page introduction to firearms, basic types of firearms, how they work, the basic laws that exist today to regulate firearms. I think that's all terrific because what I found in working in this area is that the vast majority of people just don't know very much about firearms. And so having that basic grounding is a great jumping off point for the book. The book is also incredibly strong, I think, with its historical materials. The historical section on self-defense, going back from the ancient days through the colonial era and back, is wonderful as a teaching tool, also great as a resource for anyone who wants to learn more about the right to bear arms. Whereas so many textbooks provide cases and just ask people to opine about whether the cases are rightly decided or wrongly decided, Maybe because of the nature of the materials here or because of the nature of the professors who put together the materials, that's not what this book focuses on. It's got great commentary from historical actors about the right to arms and the right to self-defense, great depth of commentary outside of just judicial opinions. I think that as you go through the book, you find fascinating little twists and turns about things that you think, oh, geez, you know, that's really a relevant thing, but I could see how it would get left out of a Second Amendment casebook. Everything on stuff like Terry Stops and Firearms and Race and Disability, again, handled with not just cases, but with commentary, too. So a really fantastic job, and my compliments to the authors for putting it together. Every once in a while, you read something terrific and get that pang of jealousy that you didn't do it yourself because it was done so well. But that, of course, hides how much great work has gone into it. Now, of course, that's not to say there weren't things that I would do differently. And indeed, having been asked to provide some critical commentary, I feel it's at least part of my job here on this podcast to at least give some constructive criticism as to how I might have done it differently. I should say that with regards to this criticism, it's not necessarily that the choices that were made by Professors Johnson, O'Shea, and others, and the others were wrong, but I might have just preferred to see it some material in some slightly different way. But with those caveats in mind, I'll move on to that part of my remarks. So first of all, if I think there, if there's something I would have liked to have seen done perhaps differently, it's that post-Miller case, the book really becomes very focused on federal law. So basically, although you find cases sprinkled throughout, and there's a little section on the end that's an exception to this rule that I'll get into in a minute, basically anything that happens after 1939 is really only a question of federal law. 
is federal court decisions dealing with federal gun control regulations. I think that's a shame, in part because I think that this is an area where state law has really played a fundamental role in shaping the jurisprudence of the right to bear arms. There are 43 states that provide in their state constitutions a right of individuals to have guns, and the vast majority of case law on the right to bear arms comes out of those state constitutional provisions, cases dating back to the early 1800s, and literally well over 100 cases interpreting those provisions in the state courts since the World War II era. I think it's a shame that that stuff does not come out in the book as much as it could. Too often, uh, we focus in law school on federal law and federal courts. This textbook might have been a great opportunity to get into some of that state material. And whereas sometimes the state material is worth avoiding because it's all over the map, I think there's actually a remarkable amount of consistency in the state court adjudications over the right to bear arms on many of these issues. So I guess I would have liked to have seen a little bit more on that. There's exceptions to this in the book. Towards the very, very end of the book, we get into sections on how do we define what firearms are in common use and how to approach firearms regulations that restrict access of children to firearms. Here we see some state court cases being used. I guess I would have loved to have seen more of that throughout the book. I also, to the extent that I feel it necessary to be critical as part of my review, I guess one thing that I would criticize in the way the book was put together was I think that the authors could have done much more to make the Heller and McDonald decisions more readable, more approachable, and frankly, shorter. Each one of these opinions is given 50 pages in the book, in a book that's got about 900 pages of text. A little more than 10% of the book is made up of two Supreme Court opinions. Obviously, those Supreme Court opinions are of paramount importance in this area, and so definitely worthy of extended discussion. But I would hate to be the professor who had to assign a student to read, say, these two cases for one class and found myself giving them 100 pages of case law reading in this format. So I would have liked to have seen that edited down a bit. But again, that's just a choice that everyone has to make their own approach to. I think perhaps more critical, I'm somewhat more critical of the chapters that come after the McDonald case. The focus of those chapters after really on things like key cases that have applied different standards of review to firearms law after these major Second Amendment decisions. I think that's unfortunate. While I've written on the standards review, I think the standard of review question is an important question, obviously. Unfortunately, Oregon on the cases by that question tends to hide a lot of issues with regards to particular types of firearms laws. In fact, when we leave the section on Heller, the reader sort of left wondering, okay, so how, how did these cases help me approach the question of restriction of assault weapons or high-capacity magazines or a variety of other restrictions? And instead of approaching those questions as topics and say, okay, the topic, assault weapons, regulation of assault weapons, let's have a couple of short case excerpts that deal with this, from maybe the state courts, maybe some of these federal court decisions, to the extent they've related to them, and have a concise, all-in-one-spot analysis of that issue. Instead, we're presented with a lengthy excerpt from the Heller 2 case and provides a little bit of insight on a bunch of different issues. And I think that, unfortunately, so many of the issues, if I were to teach a class in this area, I'd want to say, I'm going to have a day on assault weapons regulation, I would have to really pick and choose from different parts of this book to find the relevant passages to cover. So I would have liked to have seen that much more organized around topics rather than organized around cases or standards of review. 
My main criticism of the book revolve around those issues. I should say again, as I said in the beginning, I think this is a fantastic book. I'm going to be using this book in the future when I teach my firearms policy class. I have no doubt about that. And my kudos go to the authors of the book for being not only first, but also doing a fantastic, thorough job in preparing firearms law in the Second Amendment. Thank you for that, Adam. Thanks, first of all, for the compliment. It's gratifying to get that critique from someone whose work I admire. We appreciate it. So I thought just briefly I would not quite respond to but comment on the comments because the constructive criticism, not surprisingly, reflects issues that we also wrestled with during the preparation of the book. All of us, I believe, at one point or another have written fairly extensively about the impact of the state constitutional provisions and the state legal decisions on the right to arms. Those are, in fact, distinct, certainly more distinct in the period after the middle of the 19th century. I guess parallel analysis running between the federal and the state cases in the early 19th century. And to some degree, what you'll find in the book actually is that our treatment of the state cases in the 19th century is, in fact, more detailed because this is prior to Barron versus Baltimore and some cases actually subsequent to that where many state courts were of the view that they were properly opining about federal constitutional law and considered themselves relevant speakers on the issue of the Second Amendment. So we've got some of that material in place. The other thing that we did very early on, starting on page 27 in an appendix, is to include what I think is a very good detailed reference to all of the state constitutional right to arms provisions. The fact that we don't have more commentary about the impact those provisions, though, reflects to some degree the idea that their relevance is more contestable than is the uh, material that is explicitly related to the Second Amendment. So if we're thinking that the focus of the book really is driven substantially by Heller and McDonald, we did have a tactical decision to make about how much coverage of the important work done by the state courts we actually could include. One of the places that you will see a bit more of an answer to your concern is in online chapter 12, where we've got a very extensive set of tables that deal with the individual states, not in a legal context, but give us a great deal of data about gun use, gun control, crime-specific data from the states that allow us to do a kind of comparative policy assessment utilizing the state data. So it's another place where our interest in what's going on explicitly in the states appears. One other comment, and then I'll let Mike chime in. The reference to the last couple of chapters in the book, chapter 10 and more explicitly chapter 11, that is, I in fact appreciate the desire to have a post-Heller assessment of particular legal issues. So you mentioned concealed carry and the assault weapons question. The difficulty that we faced was and is that those questions are really moving targets following the Heller decision. So there's currently a very important piece of litigation going on in Maryland dealing with the issue of concealed carry. You're correct to point out that the Heller 2 decision dealt at least peripherally with the question of assault weapons and assault weapons bans. 
But what we found in thinking about how to deal with the post-Heller material was that quite a bit of the answer to those particular questions is still speculative because the jurisprudence is unfolding. And even in the process of developing what is currently Chapter 11, we rewrote it substantially during the last part of the production process to include, for example, the, the Heller 2 decision. But prior to Heller 2, one really was left to speculate only from the material in the Heller decision and a snippet in McDonald about how a variety of uh, these issues would be resolved post-Heller. And, for example, if Justice Scalia recently gave an interview on Fox News, and I think he was, in fact, equivocal about a variety of these questions. So I think part of the, the presentation, that is, to try and include what the courts had done with less commentary about what we thought the future might hold is just a reflection of the fact that this material is indeed a moving target. So there are probably a couple of other points that I left on the table, but I'll, I'll leave those two for Mike. Well, I agree with Nick, first off, in thanking Adam for his comments and, and for the praise. And I think the criticism about kind of later 20th century state constitutional cases is not unreasonable. That's a good point to make. And I, by way of offering a possibly satisfying answer, or at least an explanation of our thinking, I guess I would say two things. And the first is, in neither Heller nor McDonald has the U.S. Supreme Court shown much interest in those cases. And they have really kind of focused heavily on 19th century state cases and kind of wound up that interest not long after the start of the 20th century. That's, whether rightly or wrongly, that is shaping the reception of the state case law in the lower federal courts. And it influenced us, too, in making painful decisions about what to include. And I have to say it is painful. The state constitutional case law on the right to arms post-New Deal, in my opinion, does not on the whole compare favorably in intellectual quality to the 19th century case law, but there are some glittering exceptions. And actually, not even in a class on the right to arms, but in a class I recently taught simply on state constitutional law, I assigned some of the Oregon Supreme Court cases from the 1980s, uh, particularly State v. Kessler from 1980, interpreting the Oregon right to bear arms for self-defense. And one of the things that struck me and the students in the class, I think, was that in a much, much smaller compass, on a lot fewer pages, the Oregon Supreme Court ended up in a similar place to where the U.S. Supreme Court did in Heller, and really writing, you know, a quarter of a century before, didn't do too bad a job. It acquitted itself very nicely. So I agree that there are state constitutional cases out there that are good, but I would also throw out, here's a little less blunt argument, a little more reasoned argument for the different attitude we take to the state constitutional cases. One of the things in, about state constitutional law as a subject is ever since the explosion of federal constitutional rights in the 1960s in the Warren Court's Bill of Rights jurisprudence, the brooding, overwhelming question surrounding state constitutional law, effectively, is there any meaningful independent role for the state courts as independent interpreters of their state constitutions? And this mood of self-doubt is pervasive. You know, one of the big academic questions discussed in state constitutional law circles in the 1990s was, are state constitutions really constitutions at all? So in the middle of this malaise, you also have not just a lack of 
guidance from the U.S. Supreme Court, the 800-pound elephant, in how to apply the right to arms, but actually consistently negative signals from the federal courts about whether there was any meaningful individual right to arms. And with all of those influences, it's not surprising that the state courts in the late 20th century, the opinions are of lower quality than the 19th century opinions, and it's much less clear, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, that they really think of themselves as kind of first-line interpreters and appliers of important constitutional rights when they're doing the right-to-arms cases. So I don't know how satisfying an answer that is, but I think that also influenced our decision. I think those are good answers and respond appropriately. I do feel bad for the authors of this casebook because it's very difficult to write a casebook in an area where the law is moving so quickly that there are issues that are coming up that you could have foreseen them perhaps a few months ago, but the form that they're taking and the shape that they're taking is unpredictable. And so it is very, very difficult to write a casebook in this area that addresses so many of the important topics of firearms policy because we are still lacking uh, good jurisprudence of the Second Amendment. It just hasn't been sufficiently developed yet. Of course, the problem is if we wait till it's sufficiently developed, we might be waiting for an awful long time. Of course, it doesn't seem to be very rapid in its approach to these issues. It seems to decline every opportunity it has to provide great clarity to the lower courts and to the textbook authors. So, again, kudos to the authors for writing such a terrific book and such a great resource. I'd recommend it not just to professors who are thinking about teaching this class, but if anyone had an interest in firearms law and policy, I would say this would be a great book to just pick up and start reading and look through the sections that you're interested in. It reads much less like a case book than the average law school book, and it's more richer for it and more valuable for it. Thank you for listening to this Faculty Book Podcast. For more podcasts, as well as audio and video of past Federalist Society events, please visit our website at www.federalistsociety.org forward slash multimedia.